Father, we give you thanks today for all the stuff you've done for us, Lord. Many, many things that we could never count or number, God. Thank you most of all for your presence with us this morning, for the work that you do inside our hearts that we we can't see, but we know it's real. We can feel it in our lives and even taste the fruit of it in each other's lives. So God, as we turn again to your word and, and read it and hear it preached, God, would you write its eternal truths on our hearts? We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can have a seat. We are um, finishing up today our series on James. Um, This is our our last week for now in this wonderful little letter. So if you have your scripture sheet or your Bible, you can turn uh, to James chapter 5. We're going to look today at verses 13 through 20. 13 through 20. Here's what it says. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave the rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of God. Well, James is um, landing the plane here, and uh, we've been saying over and over that James is very consistent with his theme. He's been dealing with the same theme throughout, and that's the theme of faith. He wants to define faith for us. Uh, What is living faith versus dead faith? And how do you take that living faith and apply it in a living way into various aspects of life? And if you remember back to the first sermon that we did on James, and I know you remember all the sermons, right? You have a you know, filing cabinet in your mind where you just have them all memorized. Well, in the first sermon, we talked a little bit about James as an individual. J- James, his story matters because he was actually a brother of Jesus, a, a literal brother. He had the same mom and most people thought the same dad, even though we know the story about Jesus and his dad, right? And, and the Christmas story there. But everybody thought he was a, had the same mom and dad as Jesus. But although he grew up with Jesus and knew him at very close proximity, James, for a long time, did not believe in Jesus at all. He didn't accept anything Jesus did or said. He was an enemy of Jesus. He looked down on Jesus and was sarcastic with him. You can read about that in John chapter 7. He was real sarcastic. But something happened on the first Easter when Jesus rose from the dead. It says in the Bible that Jesus purposefully went to his brothers and revealed himself as resurrected to his brothers. And it says right then when they saw Jesus raised, that brothers believed in Jesus. James' faith came alive where it had been non-existent or dead. 
But I want you to see this morning in this passage, another aspect of that transformation is very apparent. Another aspect of it. Because James didn't just have a bad view of Jesus when he didn't believe. And the same thing is true of us today if we're not believers. It's not just the fact that we have it wrong about Jesus. That's important. It's also true that we have it wrong about Jesus' followers. We have it wrong about believers. Because in that story in John chapter 7, uh, James has this snarky way of describing those who believed in Jesus. He says to Jesus, you should go up to Jerusalem so that those disciples of yours might be impressed by the works that you do. You hear the snark in what he says there in John 7? Like, not only do I not believe in you, Jesus, but yeah, all those, all those people that do, they're idiots, right? And you need to go to Jerusalem and give them what they want. If you really are who you say you are, go impress those outcasts that are spending all their time following you. And yet notice, look at the passage today that we just read. James doesn't just not dismiss fellow believers. James believes those fellow believers are his family that he cannot live without. And the main point, and this this change can happen in our hearts too, the same change that happened in James. The main point he wants to make here is to all of us, to all believers, you have to understand you cannot live your faith out alone. We need each other. We need the church that, that God has built and that God has designed. We need one another in order to live out our faith. Faith is always lived out in community. And it's not just any community. It's a community of prayer. James speaks a lot about prayer here. And it's also a community of care, prayer and care. Praying together, praying for each other, and deeply caring for each other, you know, in our hearts and in our lives. So if you look at the the bulletin, there's an outline there for you. I want to talk you through those three things. Uh, The community, prayer, and care. What does it mean to be living together as Christians? What does it mean to be praying together? And what does it mean to be caring together? Do y'all want to hear about it? All right. Even if you don't, you are, because I'm about to say it. So be ready. Um, Living together. Uh, Why do we need the church? What's the church designed to do? Well, I want to start with a different question. If you look at the, the passage there, starting at verse 13. Did you notice how James describes what a Christian is? Do you notice how he describes what a Christian is at, at the, basic, the basic definition of a Christian? He describes it in the same way in verse 13 twice, in verse 14 another time, and then again in verse 19 he uses the same description. He says there, is anyone among you in trouble? Is anyone among you happy? And then in verse 19, is anyone among you wandering away from the truth? He uses the same phrase three different times. Anyone among you. And I want to tell you, that's actually a definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is an anyone. Anyone, right? A Christian is an individual. You say, well, duh, right? (laughs) Of course. Well, think about it. A Christian is an individual who has personal trust and faith in Jesus to save them. You can't be a Christian just because of the faith of other people around you. You have to have personal faith. You've got to personally, from the heart, rest your whole trust in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior to be a Christian. But notice, anyone among you. And the word there, you, in, in the original language, is the word y'all. It's the plural you, you all. 
A Christian isn't anyone among y'all. <laughs> a Christian is an individual who has personal faith in Jesus, and yet that a Christian exists and lives and abides together with other Christians who also have faith in the same Savior and the same Lord. There is a personal dimension to faith and building up faith, but there's also a corporate and communal dimension to having faith and building up faith. That's why James makes it a point to say, in every circumstance of life, you ought to be trying to build up your faith in those two ways, personally and together with other believers. Look there in verse 13 again. Is anyone in trouble? So are bad things happening in your life? Here's what you should do. You should pray. And there, the, the command to pray is specifically talking about individual personal prayer. Having a personal prayer life where when you're in trouble, the first thing you do is you, you shoot up your request. You, you pour out your heart straight up to God, directly from your heart to his ear. And let me tell you, I mean, this is something I know by experience. You can't wait until you're in trouble to start having a prayer life, personally, right? You can't do it. I mean, I mean you can, but it's not going to go as well. It's like trying to call up a friend from high school that you haven't spoken to in 25 years and saying, hey, will you help me move on Saturday? How's that going to go? I mean, you know, unless they're the most generous person on earth, they're probably going to say no. Probably not even going to pick up the phone, to be honest. But even if they are really generous and they do help, you're not going to instantly have a great relationship just because you reached out to them when you were in need. You've got to have an ongoing friendship with somebody for that kind of thing to happen. And for someone to naturally come to God in trouble from a heart that desires God's will to pour out the heart to him, you have to already be having that personal practice day by day in your life of prayer. That's what he's saying you need. And then he says, is anyone happy? So thank the Lord. It's not just bad things and trouble that happens in life. It's also good things. And hopefully this morning you're happy, right? The things are going well in your life. What should you do? Let them sing songs of praise. I mean, literally, the literal word he uses is there, let them psalm. That's what it says there, literally. Let them psalm. Let them be psalming every single day. And of course, that's a reference to the, the longest book in the Bible, right in the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms, where God has given as a gift to you 150 prayers or songs that you can learn, they never change. They never change y'all, they're always there. You can go and learn them and memorize them and lay them up in your heart and pray them every day. That's the practice that we're supposed to have personally, a practice of daily praise, so that when we are filled with delight at how our lives are going, we've got words already ready at the ready. We're already ready to shoot up again, just like we shot up our troubles, we're ready to shoot up our thanksgiving straight from our heart to God's ear. But notice, he goes on and says, not only do you need a private life of faith to build yourself up in Christ, you also need connection to other Christians in the church. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now, we don't have time to answer all the questions that those two verses raise. And I know you're going to have a lot of questions probably that I'm not going to get to. Come see me after. I want to focus on this one narrow thing. Notice all the stuff he's assuming about the church and your connection to it to tell you to do that. 
he's assuming, number one, there is such a thing as a church. And it's an actual, literal group of people in a literal place at a literal time, assuming that. He's assuming that you belong to it. He's assuming that that church has leaders that are official leaders, elders, he calls them. They have been literally ordained and officially appointed to lead. You know who they are because you're going to call on them. They know who you are because when you call, they answer, right? They know what they're called to do as they're, as they're to carry out their part in the body of Christ because when they get there, they don't just sit around and, you know, shoot the breeze with you. They begin to pray, you know, to God and even anoint you with oil. Um, many scholars believe that's a reference to how back in this time, uh, olive oil and various oils were used medicinally. And so part of what you did to all sick people, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, he poured on oil and wine to his wounds. That was a typical way to deal with wounded, sick people. And so what it's saying is the elders, when they show up, they mean business. They, they're caring for people spiritually, but they're also caring for them physically. They're ministering the love of Christ physically and spiritually as they come. Do you notice all those things he's assuming about the church? He's assuming, catch this, this is not very popular, but you gotta, we got to hear it and we got to wrestle with it, even if we don't like it. The church is an institution. It's an organization. And actually, we need it to be an institution in our lives. We need it to be an organization that has rules and procedures and leaders and followers and, you know, uh, processes and all that stuff. You might say, well, that's boring. It stifles real faith. Not according to James. Now, it can stifle real faith and it can make your faith as cold as ice if you only go through those motions without the daily prayer and psalming practice that you're supposed to have from your heart to God privately. It can certainly. But if you try to have only that private life by yourself and don't have the institution and the organization to minister as Jesus has called, called it to, we are all going to be impoverished. We're all going to have this giant hole in our lives. And I've probably never seen this or felt this more till 2020 when we went eight months without a Sunday morning service, right? We went probably five months without any in-person service. Did y'all feel a hole in your life? I mean, maybe you didn't. <laughs> uh, and there's probably, you know, we can talk about that, but I know I felt a hole in my life. I felt like in many ways, like I was lost in the world. And I think a part of that is when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. He really meant what he said. He meant that the way God intends to build his family is by working through this organism that is also an organization, this family that's also an institution that's in people's lives and people are in, it, in its life growing and mutually encouraging one another together. There's a scene in the book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's also in the movie. Uh, this is one of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Go read it if you haven't, or, or watch it. Where the Pevensey children, there's four children, two boys, two girls, and they're, they're brought into this magical world called, called Narnia by a lion named Aslan. Doesn't that sound really interesting? <laughs> and the lion at one point has to fight this battle against a white witch who has kind of like a devil figure. She's plunged the whole world of Narnia into darkness. 
and, and the lion is going to fight her. And these kids are, are supposed to help Aslan fight the white witch. And in this one scene, he gives each of the children a different gift to help them for the battle. You know, Peter gets a sword. Um, Lucy gets a, uh, a little vial of medicine and a horn to blow. Susan gets a bow and arrow, I think. Maybe something else, and I forget what Edmund gets, but they all get a different gift. Uh, and, and these gifts are, are specifically for use in the battle. Now notice, Aslan does not give only one person all the gifts so that everybody else could just hide behind them, right? He also doesn't give each person all the gifts individually so that they could just kind of strike out on their own and fight their own battle. He gives each one one or two things so that when they come together and use them, they're actually able to get work done for the lion who's taking over Narnia. That's a picture of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, my community. I'll, I'll call them out of the world, and I'm going to give to each one a gift. I don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts. Uh, we all have a gift that when we come together and exercise, we can actually mutually help one another and see the kingdom of Jesus advance in our Narnia here, in our community where darkness is covering everything. We can beat back that darkness with the gifts that God has entrusted to us. In other words, this is the unpopular thing to admit, but it's something that the Bible teaches from cover to cover. Faith should always be personal, but it can never be private. You understand the difference? It should always be personal. You can't have faith without an individual, private relationship with God between you and God. Everybody needs that. Everybody is offered that through the gospel. But yet, that personal faith can't stay private. It can't stay to yourself. Um, God has given you something to share. God has give, given other people some things to share with you that you need. There's things that I need that I don't have that y'all have, and vice versa, right? And so think about it this morning. Where are you struggling with faith-building practices? Is it the private side? Maybe your, your relationship with God is dry and dusty privately. Imagine what it would be like to revive your heart with the Psalms. Imagine what it would be like to, to set aside time in the morning to pray and really, really open up that, that gift that God has given you of access to his throne. Or maybe you're struggling with the corporate or the communal. You don't like church very much or you aren't extremely connected to the church or loyal to it. Uh, remember, this is the family that God builds. And just like a child, just like children, a child is lost without its family. You and I also would be completely lost without what God is doing in each other's lives. That's the first thing, living together. But also, secondly, praying together. James makes a big deal here about prayer. The community of the church that Jesus is building is a place of prayer. In fact, prayer is the source of the church's power. I don't know if y'all feel that way, that the church has power. Sometimes we don't feel that way because the church looks pitiful, right? Weak and boring and dull sometimes. Sometimes it looks corrupt and twisted, sadly. And yet, what this passage is saying is there is a power in the church's prayers. But James is very careful to let us know that power doesn't come from us, though. 
Because if it came from us, we would look at the church and think that's dull, that's boring, that's corrupt, that's evil, that's taking advantage of people. And we would think there can be no power in that place because those people are absolutely messed up. James says, no, yes, those people are messed up. We are messed up. And yet there's still power in our midst because the power comes from the one who hears prayer. And the one who promises to deliver answers to the prayers that his people make. That's the point there. Look there, starting in verse 15. The prayer offered in what? In faith. That's the critical thing. It's the prayer offered in faith that makes sick people well, that causes the Lord to raise them up, that causes sins to be forgiven. The prayer offered in faith. Faith is not some form of super spirituality. Faith is not super strength spiritually. Faith in the Bible is trust in somebody else. Faith is dependence on the power that's outside of myself. And so the power of prayer in the church is the power of ordinary people like you and me, sinners, weak, flesh, you know, you know, our flesh is breaking apart and decaying year by year. The power in prayer is people like us trusting not ourselves and each other, but ultimately trusting our Father who says, come to me, bring me your concerns, bring me your needs. That's the reason why James uses Elijah as the example, starting there in verse 17. Now, you can read about Elijah in 1 Kings and 2 Kings in the Old Testament. And if you know about Elijah, you know he did some amazing things, like truly great works. And so when James says, hey, just think about Elijah and go pray, at first, when you hear that, you're like, well, that doesn't really help me because Elijah was awesome and I'm not, right? <laughs> Elijah called down fire from heaven and it set the mountain on fire. And I, I've never done that. I never even thought to do that. I'm not like Elijah. And yet, James is actually reminding us of the other side of the ledger with Elijah. Elijah's story has another side to it. And that's what James is saying. Look, Elijah was a human being even as we are. And so when you read Elijah's story, guess what happened the day after he called down fire from heaven? He ran for his life with his tail between his legs because Queen Jezebel wanted to kill him. And he hid in the woods. And a few days later, he prayed, God, this is literally his prayer, God, kill me now because I don't want to live anymore. Elijah was a man of weakness. Elijah was a sinner, you know? He was made out of the same stuff we are. He had really deep uh, times of depression in his life. And another time he prays, God, I'm the only one left. No one's on my side. No one's with me. I I'm abandoned. And that's the cry of a depressed man. And yet, what does it say? When Elijah prayed, God listened. Even though he was an ordinary weak man, God listened and the rain stopped for three and a half years and then Elijah prayed again and the rain came down again and the earth produced its crops once again. In other words, what James is trying to show us is the church may look like an ordinary community. It may look even less than ordinary, subordinary. And yet there's a power entrusted to the church because the church has uniquely the ear of God. Just like if you're a parent, your kids uniquely have your ear, don't they? Your kids have your ear like nobody else does. You don't answer the phone with your employees or your coworkers like you do with your kids, hopefully, right? You might love them, but you don't, it's not the same. 
Your kids have your ear. We have the ear of God. And so here's a few things to think about when it comes to church prayer. First of all, we should never shy away from praying. (laughs) We should never think of it as like last on the list as a church. It's actually first on the agenda. Um, The mission of Greater Hope Church, it should be at the very top, pray. (laughs) Because God has appointed his church and the prayers of his people to guide the destinies of nations. To guide the destinies of individuals. When it says here that the sick will be healed and people's sins will be forgiven, that really happens. People really come to know Jesus personally when people pray for them. God really does heal bodies when people pray. Sometimes he doesn't. That's a great mystery, but we know from Jesus that one day when he comes again, everybody's going to get healed. Right? Every mind is going to get healed. Every emotional heart, every heart is going to get put back together and healed one day. And so in the book of Revelation says that when Jesus comes back to do that, he's going to be responding even then to the prayers his people prayed generations before. And so number one on the agenda, pray. Don't shy away from it. But secondly, we shouldn't have wrong expectations for prayer. Uh, prayer is not a genie's lamp that we get to rub and get whatever we want, right? It's not that. Uh, God answers his prayer, our prayers the way he wants to. In fact, Jesus himself had a prayer answered no one time. Y'all remember that? Jesus said, God, Father, take this cup away from me, talking about the cross. Take the cup away. I don't want to do it. And God said, no. Take the cup and drink it. It's the only way. And Jesus says, your will be done and not mine. Now, If Jesus, the Son of God, who was pure and all that, if he had one of his prayers at least answered with no, how many prayers do you think you're going to get answered with no and I'm going to get? Because here's how God works, and it's a good thing. I'm going to tell you, this is good news. It wasn't just Garth Brooks who thought God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. It's the Bible that teaches this, and it's serious. Like, it's really good. Because God answers our prayers based on his knowledge, not mine. That's good news. Because I got some very shady knowledge. God answers prayers based on his loves, not mine. And that's good because I love some bad things and not just good things, right? God answers his prayers based on his vision for the future and not mine. That's good because my vision of the future is so puny and tiny and small and limited. But his is so big and expansive and worldwide, universal. So it's a good thing. When God answers some of our prayers with no, it's not a genie's lamp. But y'all, prayer is also not just a personal soothing exercise either. You know, sometimes you'll hear that, you know, I've read these like news articles about studies show that prayer helps people get out of the hospital quicker, helps them, you know, which is true, probably. Studies show it, after all. (laughs) But often in those studies, they say, here's the reason why. Because when people pray, they encourage themselves. When they pray, they get their thoughts and mind right. They quit getting discouraged and they want to fight more for their health. And I'm not disputing that. I think that actually does happen when you pray. But if that's all prayer is, let's pack it up right now and go home, right? Because it's not that, you can do that on your own, right? Prayer is not a genie's lamp, but y'all, it is a direct connection to the ear of God who actually does work in the world. And he loves to work in response to the prayers of his children. 
Third thing, last uh, about prayer. You, you can't just pray alone, but you need to pray alone. You need to do both. Notice how the, the passage says individuals should pray in verse 13. And then it says in verse 16, friends should pray together in the church. Friendship prayer. Y'all should be praying together and for each other. It says confess your sins to each other. Let, let each other know what's on your heart. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. Then the leaders of the church ought to pray. The elders, the, the people who, who have all been set apart to lead, their main job is to pray. My main job is to pray. Prayer should go all throughout the church. That's why in the, in the Bible and in the history of the church, you see it. Often God does some of his greatest work among the church when they start a concert of prayer. You know, when, when a network of prayer begins to break out among the congregation. And so, do you see prayer as a calling? A calling. Like God, God has that as an assignment. It's right up there with your job. It's right up there with your parenting, with your marriage. Prayer is like a job. It's more than a job. It's a relationship. It's a privilege. But it's a job that you have to actually work at and you actually have to commit to. You have to clock in and not clock out. <laughs> Keep clocking in, right? That's prayer. Now, thirdly, and lastly this morning, let's talk about caring together. The church is powerful not just because the church prays together, but the church is supposed to care together. And there in verses 19 to 20, James describes care. And he wants to tell us how hard it is and yet how powerful it is to care for people. Y'all already know about the first one. You know how hard it is to care for people, right? I don't have to talk to you much about that. Is it hard to care for people? Uh, yeah, I mean, people come with burdens. People come with awkwardnesses and difficulties and things like that. By the way, you come with burdens also and awkward. I come with burdens and awkwardnesses. And that's exactly what verses 19 and 20 are saying. We come with sins. We come with evil that we are committing against God and against other people. And that, that takes a great deal of patience. You know, the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Have you seen that? George Bailey, most of the movie, is really depressed about his life. He hates his life. Do you remember why? Because early on in, in his adulthood, he had this dream of being big and going to a big place and accomplishing great things. And he got stuck in his hometown of Bedford Falls and in his family business. And every day he made these little decisions not to serve himself, but to serve his community. But unfortunately, even though he did the right thing, he didn't have the right heart behind it. And he was always bitter about that until the end of the movie when he learns the lesson. The angel shows up, Harold, <laughs> the angel. Isn't that right, Harold? And uh, describes to him that really what you've been doing, you've, you've been living the wonderful life. You thought it was off in some big city doing some great thing. But it's really just learning how to sacrifice yourself on behalf of other people. And George Bailey learned that lesson. Well, the Bible all throughout describes our God as a shepherd. A shepherd. What is a shepherd? Except someone who dies to self daily in order to care for something weaker and more stupid <laughs> and, and slower than, than himself. That's what God does for us. And the Bible also says that because God has shepherded us and because he shepherds us, he is turning his church into a shepherding operation where not just pastors, but everybody in the church is learning how to shepherd one another. There is a restoring power that God gives to the church that every one of us needs 
and every one of us is also able to contribute to. That's why it says, if you see someone wandering from the truth, anyone, you should bring them back like a shepherd would. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about the care he describes there. First of all, he says, if someone should wander from the truth, then we all should be there to bring him back. What does it mean to wander from the truth? How easy or hard is it to see somebody wandering from the truth? I mean, it's really easy to see the error of somebody's ways, right? Everybody with me? It's, it's obvious as the nose on their face. When somebody's, the wheels start to fall off of somebody's life, we're like, yep, it's bad, and we need to rally around that person and help them, and the church often responds to those kinds of triage, emergency situations. But James is saying, when you're only responding to the wheels falling off, you're missing the main work of a shepherd. You're missing the main work of the church, which is to actually know people well enough and to be known well enough that even when they begin to wander from the truth in the heart, somebody notices. And somebody doesn't just notice, but they take that person's needs and, and health onto their own shoulders and they walk towards that person and with that person to restore them gently back. They don't come wagging the finger. Instead, they come throwing the shoulder around, picking the person up, whatever is needed, just because they notice something so subtle as wandering from the truth. Here's the question. Do you know people in this church well enough to see when they're wandering from the truth? Does somebody know you well enough to know when you're just beginning to flirt with wandering from the truth? Now, that could be your fault. It could be our fault or somebody else's fault. I don't really care whose fault it is. I just think we need to rectify it. <laughs> I think we need to learn how to know each other and to be known and to care deeply so that we can see the most subtle aspects. This is not like a creepy, creeping on people thing. No, it's not that. This is a, I care about you so much that the slightest changes to your spiritual temperature concern me. And I want to help you. And I want you, by the way, to notice the slightest changes of my spiritual temperature. And to help me, because I need it too. We all need it. Isn't that right? Now, none of us in this room are very good at caring together. None of us are very good naturally at praying together. None of us are even very good at living together. What's to be done? I think it's this. James, once again, wants us to remember, and he, and he points this out in verse 20, kind of subtly. He wants us to remember the good shepherd with a capital G and a capital S. The church is not fatherless. The church is not saviorless or shepherdless. The church has a head, Jesus, over the top of all of it. And he is ultimately the one who turned us all back from the error of our ways. Isn't that right? Through his cross and resurrection so that we would come out of death and into life. He covers by his blood the multitude of our sins. He cares for us so, so amazingly. From the moment he came into this world, he came identifying himself with the most dysfunctional family the world has ever known, the church, you and me. We're the most dysfunctional family on the planet. 
And yet Jesus said, not, oh, I want to, like we want to do with our family members that are embarrassing. You know, we kind of want to duck and cover and hide. Jesus says, no, count me in. Baptize me in the Jordan so that they can see I'm for them. I'm here to go to the cross for those people, sinners, all. I'm coming to save them. Jesus always offered up prayers for us, and he still does. The Bible says he continually prays for us. And as we saw at the beginning of the service, he cares for us, and he does not cringe to reach out and embrace sinners like me, sufferers like me. Instead, that's the very thing he loves to do. What's the solution to our problem? We have got to spend time with the good shepherd so that we as a church can become good shepherds. We got to spend time with the great fisher of men who reeled us in so that we can become better fishers of men and women and boys and girls. And, and, and what James has been teaching us is living faith, living faith pursues that by his grace and in lockstep with him.